If you've got a Bible with you, then you might want to get it out if it's a paper one or get it open if it's a digital one. We will be looking at it in a moment. Christmas is almost here. I reckon, maybe you feel the same, maybe you don't, I don't know. I reckon I'm pretty familiar with the Christmas series. I've done it at least 50 times now. I've been around for year upon year. The story's the same. I'm very familiar. There's a baby that gets born. There's shepherds. There's angels. There's all sorts going on. I'm pretty familiar with the Christmas story by now. But however familiar it may be to you and to me, there's still plenty in the Christmas story to make us stop in awe and wonder. In particular, that God would love mankind such that he would send his son, who is God himself, for our sakes. The most famous verse in the Bible is a Christmas verse. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Christmas is a love story. And there are other Remarkable elements to the Christmas story, as well as the vast fact that God would love us in such a way. Have you noticed that angels are very prominent in the Christmas story? They keep popping up and making things happen. There is a virgin birth, literally. There are Eastern astrologers, which is curious, and a star miraculously appearing. There are political events that lead Joseph to have to be in Bethlehem at just the right time and the right place. Have you noticed this as well? There's a lot of pain in the Christmas story. Things are not easy for Mary. Things are not easy for Joseph. Things are not easy for anybody involved. Things are tragic in Bethlehem where Herod orders the execution of all the boys under the age of two in an attempt to get rid of this supposed Messiah. And curiously as well, there are loads of prophecies, words from God through people in ancient texts that point towards the events around the Christmas story. And one of those most famous ancient prophecies quoted almost every Christmas in almost every church setting is in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9 and the, pre, the preceding chapters, Isaiah is speaking into a situation of darkness, of gloom, of distress. It's not starting in a very positive way. Isaiah's message, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus came, is in a context of gloom and trouble and distress for all of God's people. Why is that the case? Well, chapters 7 and 8, before we get to chapter 9, tell us why there's so much distress going on. You see, Ahaz is the current king. He's the next in a succession of pretty bad kings. They had the odd good one, the odd good moment, but by and large, the kings of that day led the people away from God and into immorality and idolatry. And he's in a particular quandary because things are not going well because the little nation to the north of Judah and the little nation to the south are about to cause a whole heap of trouble. You see, the nation to the north, the nation to the south are waiting for the nation way across to the east, the big nation, Assyria, who are always like 
sitting there waiting to attack, waiting for them to come. And so the little nation to the north, the little nation to the south, are giving Ahaz, the king of Judah, real trouble in saying to him, Oi, you, join with us, the little nation to the north, the little nation to the south, join with us, we need your help, because we want to oppose this big nation that's going to come and attack us. And Ahaz is, is in a, he's between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't want to join these two nations because he's all the more fearful, not just of them, but of this big nation. If I align myself with these two, this big nation's going to come and attack me. Imagine this scenario. Here we are in Bournemouth. Imagine Christchurch on one side, Paul on the other side, wanting us to combine with them because they're really worried about the big place, Southampton, coming and attacking us. We're afraid of Paul. We're afraid of Christchurch. We're definitely afraid of Southampton. What on earth are we to do? Well, Ahaz is completely stuck. But God sends his word to Ahaz through Isaiah saying this, Ahaz, don't worry. Don't ally yourself with any of those nations. Trust in the Lord and see that he will cause all of them to fall. And by the way, Ahaz, as a little bonus, you can ask me, God says, for a sign, for any sign that this is in fact what's going to happen. Well, Ahaz says, blow that. I don't trust God enough. I'm asking for no sign. Isaiah is not impressed with that. He says, you've been trying the patience of your people. Now you're trying the patience of God. Watch out. But Isaiah says from God, blow it, Ahaz, I'm giving you a sign anyway. And here's the sign I'm going to give you. A young lady, perhaps a virgin, but a young lady anyway, will conceive and give birth to a son. Whose husband she was, we're not entirely sure. It might have been Ahaz's, it might have been Isaiah's. And here's the point, while the son is still very young, both of those nations, the one to the north, the one to the south, are going to be laid to waste. And what she's going to do is call her son Emmanuel, because this little son, who before he's old enough, will see both of these nations defeated, will be called Emmanuel as a sign before you, Ahaz, though you don't believe much, that God is with us, Emmanuel. Well, Ahaz still doesn't trust God to sort it all out. And he sends a great big gift to this massive nation, Southampton in our language, this massive nation over here, and says, I just want to serve you. Please be nice to me. Well, at the end of chapter 8... Isaiah says in a warning to Ahaz, it is God alone that you should be fearing. Not the little nations, not the big nation. You should be fearing God alone. It's only God's word that you should be obeying and listening to. And if you don't, you will end up, you and your people will end up in distress and darkness and fearful gloom thrust into utter darkness, he says at the end of chapter 8. You can see why the situation is pretty grim, as I said a little bit earlier. But the next word is a very famous word, because the next word is nevertheless. 
Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, despite all that judgment and prospect of utter darkness, God says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Hold on to that phrase. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Nevertheless, despite all this gloom that is occurring, despite all the judgment Ahaz that you are putting yourself and your people under, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. As God has already promised regarding the woman's young son. And instead of gloom, instead of gloom, it's not just neutrality, instead of gloom, verses 2 to 5, there will be great rejoicing because God will release his people from the oppression that they are under. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Isaiah's using, in picture language, four images from his day of what it will be like when God breaks in, when nevertheless becomes reality. Four pictures. One, you've been stumbling in darkness, but now you will walk in the light. Number two, it'll be like when the harvest comes in. You know those days? Well, we don't. We're not agricultural people. But the beginning of harvest was a massive celebration. Look, God's been faithful again. There is another harvest. The first bits have come in. The rest will follow. That's what it's going to be like. Nevertheless, despite all this gloom, God is going to bring victory. It'll be like a wonderful harvest. It's even going to be like, you know, you know when our warriors go out and fight? All the men go off and fight. And then we wait for word to see what's happened. There's no internet back then, no mobile phones to have a look on, see what's happening. And we hear word, and then word comes that they've been victorious. And we think, yes, thank God for victory over our enemies. That's what it's going to be like when nevertheless happens, when God intervenes in history. Remember the story, fourthly, of Gideon and the Midianites. Basically, it's party time when God comes through with nevertheless. And then, verses 6 to 7, God is explaining through Isaiah how all of this is going to come about. They are very famous words, but they are astonishing words. How is all this going to happen? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase or the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty himself will accomplish this. As so often with Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah is speaking of his day, but he's actually speaking of a greater day, of a great future day. You see, the relief that was to come from the nation to the north, the nation to the south, ultimately the nation to the east, while they still fell in judgment, did God's people, through their disobedience and idolatry, And the temporary judgment that was delayed was only that. Because in the end, they were obliterated and taken off into exile. What is Isaiah speaking about then? If not only about his day. Well, the child, the son of Isaiah chapter 9, will grow not just to be the next king, not even a good king against those who've been rubbish, not just any king. He is the king, the king who will reign with righteousness and peace and justice forever, fulfilling The promises made to David. He, this child, this son, is the one the New Testament knows as Jesus Christ. The king who will reign in righteousness and justice and peace forever. And let me tell you what he'll be like. Let me tell you what this king will be like. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're going to look at each of those four phrases over the next few weeks. The first one today, wonderful counselor. I heard the other day that there are now 51 nations represented here at Citygate, which is pretty downright remarkable that's an awful lot and in particular has anyone noticed the Nigerians are coming (laughs) I would say every other new person I meet here is probably Nigerian which is wonderful you are very very welcome as part of this family One result of lots of Nigerians coming to Citygate is that every now and again, I'm asked to do a baby naming ceremony, which in their culture is very, very significant. It really matters that you have a baby naming ceremony. And so it's become more regular this year. I had one this week. The one this week involved a child with six names. And for a simple Englishman who doesn't know a lot of Nigerian, some of those names are very, very challenging. But I proceed manfully, making a slight fool of myself. But those names that the Nigerian child is given... They're sometimes names of existing family members. They're often names given by existing family members who all get a chance to pitch in. 
but they always, those names, have significant meaning. They almost always have God at the center of them, those names. It's fascinating. So this week, of the six names, which I wasn't brave enough to try and recount to you, two of them were Farialua, which means to totally depend on God. They're praying, this child will totally depend on God. Another of the child's names was Yemilo, which means I am deeply loved by God and by family. Well, this child, who Isaiah speaks of in chapter 9, this child who will be born, this son who will be given, had many titles during his life, all of which had huge meaning and significance. He was known as Jesus, Saviour. He was known as the Christ. He was known as Lord, as Emmanuel, as Shepherd, as Word, as Son of God, as Son of Man, as Son of David, as I Am, as Lamb of God, as Light of the World. And here, Isaiah says, he will be known as Wonderful Counselor. Less perhaps a specific name than an insight into his character and what he will be like. But what does that name, Wonderful Counselor, mean? Well, the first thing we have to do is to get rid of a personal therapist idea. Jesus is not just inviting you to lie on a sofa and to tell him your deepest woes, though clearly that's some connection there. No, counsellor, as Isaiah uses it, as used elsewhere throughout the Old Testament, means things like this. It means one who will be known for his wisdom. One who will be known for his counsel. He will lead and guide with perfect understanding and insight. He'll be one who will give good and godly advice. He'll be actually a military kingly strategist. He'll be a truth teller. He'll be a righteous ruler. His counsel will be amazing. But it won't just be that he's wise. It won't just be amazing counsel that he gives. Because this king is a wonderful counselor. And that word wonderful means a whole heap of stuff. It's the Hebrew word pele. And it means... Um, as used elsewhere in the Old Testament, it has the idea of extraordinary. It has the idea of miraculous. It has the idea of wondrous, of supernatural counsel, of wisdom and insight that would lead you to flourish in ways that nobody else could ever impart to you. With a king like that, no wonder, back to the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9, no wonder darkness is turned to light. No wonder distress is turned to joy. That's the sort of king he is. That's the sort of counsel he gives. And if we jump to the New Testament, Matthew in the Christmas story, or following the Christmas story, Matthew, of course, refers specifically to this Isaiah 9 prophecy. And he connects it, as he does with many Old Testament prophecies, to Jesus himself. So Matthew writes this. 
Jesus is about 30 years of age at this point. Matthew writes, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum now, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Do you remember that? I asked you to remember that from Isaiah chapter 9. Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Here's Isaiah's words being quoted by Matthew now in direct relation to Jesus. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. And as Matthew and Mark and Luke and John then lay before us the life and ministry of Jesus, we get to see this wonderful counsellor in action. We read how from a young age he was known for his wisdom, Luke chapter 2. We hear how he was the way, the truth and the life. We read how people were amazed at his teaching. Have you noticed in the Gospels how often amazed comes up? Jesus was amazing people all the time. We read how he amazed people at his teaching because he taught, they said, as one who has authority. They asked, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? And after a particular healing, we read this. All his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. He was a wonderful counsellor, unprecedented in his wisdom and his kingly authority. All of which means this. Listen Listen to this wonderful counsellor. When Jesus was baptised, a voice, the Father from heaven, said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Folks, if we have any wisdom at all in our own selves, it will be this, that we will listen to him. Because he is a wonderful Counselor, Listen to him for salvation. Listen to him for wisdom. Listen to him for truth. Listen to him for help in the big things and the small things. World leaders, listen to him. Parents, listen to him. Business people, school teachers, listen to him. Unemployed and retired, listen to him. The wealthy and the poor, listen to him. The healthy and the sick, listen to him. The happy and the depressed, listen to him. Listen to him because every single day is a battle for every single one of us for who to listen to. To listen to the world, the flesh and the devil or to listen to the wonderful counsellor. Every day, the world is preaching to you and to me. Be under no illusions. But if every day, 
The world is speaking to me. You'd be better off with this. You need this to be fulfilled. Every day, my flesh is speaking to me. You deserve this. Stop denying yourself. Every day, devilish accusations and temptations speak to me. Who are you? Don't you remember what you did? And who is this God who you so stupidly serve? Every single day, you and I have a choice for who to listen to. The world, the flesh, and the devil, or the wonderful counselor. But why... Why listen to the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil instead of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life? Why believe anything or anyone ahead of the wonderful counselor when he is God in whom all goodness and all purity dwells and who knows all things and knows all that is good for you and for me? If I can just listen to the wonderful counselor, I will find, you will find, that in good and in difficulty, we will be enabled to flourish because he is goodness perfected. And here is a most wonderful thing about the wonderful counselor. He was not only with mankind for a few decades in the first century, he is with us in three very related ways right here and right now and will be with you when you step out of here. He's with us. The wonderful counselor is with us by his word. 